Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. After my interview with Richard Robb, Kristen will join me for a conservative perspective. My guest today is Richard Robb, a professor of professional practice in international and public affairs at Columbia University and CEO of the investment firm Christofferson Robb & Company, which he co-founded in 2001. Today, we'll be talking about his recent book, Willful, How We Choose What We Do. Professor Rob, welcome to the show. Great to be here. You know, I, I got to start by saying I was pulled into your book from the very beginning. In the, in the first chapter alone, you managed to bring in Schopenhauer, Preston Sturges, Dostoevsky, and Nietzsche, and it wasn't forced. It all just fitted beautifully, and that I can't recall the last time a first chapter of a book sucked me in like that. Thank you so much. It's <laughs> wonderful to hear. And so I thought we'd start by, because this is a book about choosing, and of course that has political ramifications. And for a long time now, the, uh, I guess you could call it the dominant paradigm in economics, at least something you know an awful lot about, because I didn't mention this in the intro, but I believe you got your PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Um, so you know a lot about rational choice. And of course, that's the dominant, was at least a dominant paradigm. And I thought we could start there. Could you talk a little bit about what rational choice is, what it means? Sure. You know, rational choice is a theory of human behavior that is based on really two premises. One, we can evaluate choices that we encounter. We know that we prefer this to that, that to this, or we're indifferent between the two of them. And then once we can rank the different options that are in front of us, we pick which one will best satisfy our preferences. So we know what we want, and we do a pretty good job of trying to get it. That's, that's the idea. And, and from that, we can derive a very, uh, we can understand a great deal about how we choose what we do. It's a full-blown theory of, of human action. Now, it doesn't mean that we care only and unattractively about our material well-being. The things that we might care about could include, oh, our own moral conduct. We can care about the well-being of other people or the environment or animals. Nor does it mean that we're a calculating machine or that it feels like we're calculating. We just we pick what's best, but it may not always be obvious to us that we're choosing in in this way. It can even be modeled, uh, you know. In, in, in quite rigorous mathematical terms, but it doesn't mean that that's accessible to us as we're making the choices. You know, um, the story I tell about Schopenhauer at the beginning, um, I found it in World of Will and Idea, and it is some years ago, and it just jumped out at me as a marvelous example to illustrate the intuition behind rational choice economics. Schopenhauer tells the story of an elephant that was traveling. Traveled throughout Europe, presumably in a war campaign, and it had uh, crossed many bridges in its travels. It came to one bridge, it saw men and horses cross the bridge, but 
it stopped short in its tracks because the elephant determined that the bridge would not be able to bear its weight. So that's kind of the idea that the people and even animals are pretty smart when the stakes are high enough. Right. And from, from this premise, the people choose what's best for them, what will, what will satisfy their preferences. We understand all kinds of things from, from who we marry to the price of soybeans to things inside and outside of economics. Uh, I'll give you one example uh, that was that uh, I captures, captures the idea. Um, you know, the economic approach to behavior treats crime as just another occupation. So a criminal is not a special kind of person with some unique psychology that has to be understood on its own terms. But just like everybody else, a criminal responds to their incentives. So they look at the wage um, in the crime sector so how much they can uh-huh. make by stealing. And then they adjust for the potential punishment. And this leads to predictions. If the probability of being detected goes up, people should commit less crime. If the punishment goes up, or if the wage in the non-crime sector goes up, all of that will predict that they'll um, reduce crime. They, they plan for the future. If a town builds a prison, criminals anticipate that the cost of incarcerating will go down and sentences will go up. So a rational criminal will see the crime doesn't pay as well. So they'll start investing in skills to go into the non-crime sector. So a world of things that can be understood through rational choice. And although my, uh, my book develops alternative theories, I'm certainly no heretic. Uh, it, would be, it would be nuts to deny the power of this approach to understanding human action. Right. And, and especially, it seems to me, in the aggregate, if you don't look into that black box of human behavior, that uh, the, the, the notion or the idea that people are rational utility maximizers actually has been extraordinarily powerful. No, no doubt about it. But just because it can explain many things, as I argue in the book, uh, doesn't mean it can explain everything. Right. And there's this alternative view, or maybe not alternative view, but perhaps complementary view that's developed, especially in, the, say, the last few decades, that of behavioral economics, kind of the, well, I guess it's not the hot new thing anymore, but certainly it's a, a very popular field. And can you sort of explain how that came up, maybe to address, I guess, some of the perceived shortcomings of rational choice? Yeah. You know, many people consider it an alternative to rational choice, the dominant alternative that the profession has to offer. The idea of behavioral economics is that we we have these preferences and we try to choose, but we get caught up in cognitive defects, behavioral biases. Presumably there are mental shortcuts that were left over from the ancestral environment. So we, we fall into these, into these traps. So we care how something is framed to us. If we, the, the first price we hear will tend to anchor our expectations and we'll, um, we'll be driven towards that. Or we save too little, prepare too little for the future. Or when we do prepare for the future, we'll end up having moments of impatience. We, it, it would, 
there are a handful that are related to time that suggest that our the way that we engage with time is completely dysfunctional, that we're overconfident in our own opinions. Um, but the, the list goes on and on. And, you know, I probably, you know, I, th- I think it would be extreme to take the view that there's, that there's nothing to it, that we, we don't fall into these traps. But most of these are identified in laboratory experiments where, you know, it's the amount of money at stake is quite low. I think often people don't fully understand the rules of the experiment. They're not paying close attention. Anybody who's taught students knows it's hard to get across a complex set of rules in a short period of time. They, they mine the they mind the question to try to figure out what's wanted from them or they you know a lot of times the rules themselves are tricks so they're trying to test something else and what they tell the subject is being tested so you know i i don't know that i i I liken it in the book to optical illusions things that are entertaining maybe sometimes instructive but really not that central to everyday life and I think, you know, it, on, on that point, it seems to me we're, we're learning more and more about the, what sometimes is called the replication crisis in a lot of the social sciences that kind of gets at a lot of that, that these settings in which some of these ideas are, are developed or tested are just not necessarily all that generalizable to the, to the real world, certainly. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, one time, this was in the 80s, I enrolled in an experiment just to see what would happen. It was a professor was trying to test whether uh, biases when you're participating in auctions would show up for people who were um, professional traders, which I was at the time. I was a bond trader. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll enroll in this experiment and learn something from it. And I was found to, even though I was trying as hard as I could, I was fresh from having, a, as you mentioned, a PhD in economics from University of Chicago, and I was a bond trader. So I was about as hyper-rational a creature as our society yeah. knows how to create. <laughs> and I was trying my hardest. But still, I, I messed up the first time around because the rules were <laughs> ambiguous to me. And, and I can still remember the glee of the experiment. Ah, okay, everybody, everybody has these biases, but... You know, I, that was when I started to started to wonder. And the, the, the thing that I, and, you know, working in business and finance just increases my respect for markets and for people who operate when their interests are at stake. Um, uh, but I don't want to take the extreme view and dismiss it altogether. But you know, I was teaching I taught a class for years at Columbia called Foundations of Individual Choice. It was a seminar for about 20 students. And at the beginning of class, go, uh, I'd go around the room and say, why, why are you taking this class? And the students would say, well, I don't feel like I'm a fully rational agent. So I've come here to learn about behavioral economics. I'm thinking, is that all we got for you? <laughs> you know, you, you have these preferences. Yeah. You try to maximize it. Sometimes you mess up. And we'll identify your biases and then you'll correct yourself. Uh, you'll, you'll act in conformity with economic models so that everybody could go back to being rational and get what they want again. Yeah. Just a quick break to thank SaneBox, the sponsor of today's show. You know, I've been 
for years trying to get my email under control. It's been a largely losing effort, but then I gave SaneBox a shot and it really transformed my inbox. As your email comes in, SaneBox leaves only the important messages in there and directs all the other distracting stuff to your Sane Later folder. And that means you know what messages to pay attention to now and what stuff can wait until later. It also has other great features like the Sane Black Hole that lets you drag messages from annoying senders you never want to hear from again. I'm sure you have them. I do. And Sane Reminders, which lets you know if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date, which is super useful in my experience. Best of all is that you can use SaneBox with any email, client, or phone anywhere you check your email. Check out how SaneBox can almost magically really remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash politicsguys today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash politicsguys. The thing that really interests me about what, what you propose in the book is it's, it, it is something that, that's, to me, very different in that, essentially, it seems to me there are, what you propose are two types of actions. We have purposeful actions, and that's uh, kind of where we can, where there are things that we can compare, and then what you call for itself action, where things sort of stand for themselves and can't really be compared, and maybe you could expand on on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, normally when when people are uncomfortable with neoclassical economics of rational choice, of the two assumptions that they focus on, one is that we have preferences, and the other is that we optimize to maximize those preferences subject to our resources. All the action is on the second assumption. But to me, the first one is not so obvious that everything lends itself to knowing whether I prefer one thing to another. Maybe sometimes choice just, just isn't like that. Uh, let's, to, to take an example, um, sometimes we might engage in an altruistic gesture that's not better than another one. It's just happens to have captured our imagination for a moment and the only answer to why we did it is, is just because it's not we haven't made a mistake because we have a cognitive bias we just did what we wanted to do we exercised our will we're acting on the world and and exercises of will by their very nature can't be folded into preferences we might want to have a small adventure and see what's going to happen, even though it's not necessarily the best adventure. It's a game, it's a sport. And if we had a preference for, I want to exercise this much will, well, then we've taken ourselves back to just passively calculating again, and, it, and, and by its nature, it's not will any longer. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wonder, I was trying to think of examples of this in, in my own life, and the places where I just did things just because I wanted to do it. And what, what came to me uh, is uh, at sometimes, like when I'm putting together uh, lecture notes for students and I'm putting together a PowerPoint, and sometimes I will spend a ridiculous amount of time looking for exactly the right graphic to illustrate a point, even though I know that it's just going to be essentially completely inconsequential to the students. For some bizarre reason, it matters to me. And 
there's no you know utility maximization here. It's just something I feel like I should do. Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? It's a perfect example. Um, I if I had thought of it, I could have put it in the book. <laughs> um, I, I mentioned example of somebody who might fiddle with a recipe for to get it just right, even though it'll be eaten in a moment. People might not be paying attention to it. You know, for that moment, you're an artist. You're playing a game. You're involved in a sport, and you're. Um, I mean, you say bizarre reason, and we, we we speak in the language of having reasons for things, but there really isn't a reason why you want to do it. It's I, you did it because uh, just because, yeah. because it was for itself. Yeah, but but then I wonder, kind of a response that some of the uh, uh, I guess more classical uh, economists might say is, well, actually you can place the value on that. And they might say, for instance, if I gave you, if you were in the middle of putting this graphic and this PowerPoint and I offered you a million dollars to not do it, would you take it? And I'd say, well, sure, I, I sure will. And so, you know, there is a price at which I will not engage in this action. So isn't that sort of the value of that action or, or am I oversimplifying here? Well, no, no, I... Look, there's a price for everything, as they say. And if somebody, some somebody shows up in a some eccentric uh, billionaire <laughs> shows up wearing his top hat yeah. and says, "Okay, Michael, here's a million dollars to put a a bad slide in your class." Of right. course, you would take it. I, I certainly would. But I'm interested in everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. And understanding our normal actions, where I, at least in my life, I don't have agents like that who show up and do <laughs> no. such things. So, so things that happen naturally, organically in our lives, right. um, where we get caught up in in little games that we play or other yeah. types of examples. There are big games that we play. And you know, we in, in the book you talk a lot about uh, beliefs, and at one point you say that we pick beliefs that appeal to us. And of course, you know that that seems to me it also would obviously include political beliefs. But when I read that, I thought, I wonder how if that's ex- exclusively true, at least that we pick our beliefs, because it seems to me that things like environment and experience you know, they shape what we might call the choice architecture. And so we're pushed toward or away from certain things. So in a way, beliefs kind of pick us as well, don't they? Oh, they, they certainly do. The, the, our commitment to our beliefs are another example of action that's for itself. The, the uh, pragmatist philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce identified four reasons why we adopt a belief. The first is because it fits with the other beliefs that we already have. The second is because an authority told us to believe them, an authority that we recognize. The third, as you mentioned, it's the style of thing that we like to believe. Peirce said it's agreeable to reason. And then the fourth is it fits with the facts in the world, that the belief is true because of data that we gathered right. and tested it against that data. And we talk and act as if it's only the fourth one that matters to us, that we go through our day ready to switch any belief as soon as the data comes or somebody argues with us and shows us how we've lost our way and we, or our belief is wrong. But very rarely do we say, oh, oh yes, you're, you're right. I'm going to change everything that I used to believe. It happens once in a while, but it's, it's not a, a normal occurrence. Um, and the 
commitment that we have to our beliefs that form part of our identities are just not up for grabs all the time. If they were, we would be uh, incoherent as we try to navigate whatever it is that we, we seek to do. Uh, you know, I, I discovered a quote just recently, and I, I, I'm using it in the foreign editions of the book, but I can't use it in the, in the U.S. edition because I found it too late. But it's from Job in the Bible, where after he's undergone his tribulations, he's talking to his friends before he goes to confront God. And he tells his friends, though he may slay me, yet I will trust him, but I will keep my ways before him. And I think that's such a great line. Yeah. You know, yeah. Okay, the first line, though he may slay me, I'll trust him. I think that's the sort of thing you'd expect. But I will keep my ways before him. He's, you know, after all he's been through, he's mm -hmm. still going to be who he is. Right. Um, and in less dramatic ways, you know, why should I change my beliefs, even if they might be more accurate to gratify the new person that I'm going to become after I change my beliefs and my identity. No, I, of course, we all want to commit to the truth to the extent that we can and to be honest and have integrity. And I, I, I'm not arguing that we're in a post-truth world. I, I think it's, uh, well, you know, we all want to do our best, but uh, it's it's not a perfect, uh, it, it, to, to strive for perfection is not practical. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, you know, in, in looking at those four steps that Pierce outlines, it seems to me that that fourth one, that that new belief when subjected to scientific method corresponds to data in the world, that mm. of those four things seems to me to be, for most people, the least important. To me, in, in the real world, that when people adopt beliefs, it's because they're consistent with what they already believe, that somebody they trust says, you should believe this, and then it's the sort of thing they're inclined to believe. To me, those three things, for most folks, most of the time, seem to be far more powerful drivers than that fourth kind of totally rational thing. Sadly, I have the same impression. Um, but, you know, we all of the four itself action that we undertake I think is obscure to us yeah. because we, our image of ourselves are as rational beings that undertake actions for a reason that have, um, that can explain our actions in, in terms of effectively rational choice, even if we don't use that term. So um, when a, uh, a new idea or some data comes up that conflicts what we currently believe we all have a gift for dismissing the yeah. data or the experts they're 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 trying to sell us something they, they're confused in ways that even though they know a whole lot more than we do we've somehow determined that they're wrong and we're right we don't say oh there's an expert and he knows more so i'm going to switch yeah. over it's just, not, <laughs> no. just not what we do although we we talk in the language as if that's as if that's what we do right well, there, there's that quote from Keynes that you have of when he says, when the evidence changes, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And I thought, well, most people aren't economists who are like that. And most people, I think, just just what you were saying, find some way to discount or cherry pick the evidence as opposed to changing their mind, which is just very difficult. That, that, that's right. And it's not only difficult because we don't want to do it all. Yeah. It, it's, it's not. And, you know, Keynes actually did say that. I had to, I didn't want to put any 
quotes in the book that I didn't believe to be real and, and true. There's there's evidence that he said he said that several times, although not not in writing. But there's no evidence that he switched his beliefs any more than anybody else. Yeah. It's just a rhetorical device right. that he concocted. But but then again, you know, I think there are also at least some people who maybe are more prone to switching their beliefs because they've adopted kind of a, a unusual belief in open-mindedness as sort of a personal virtue. And I thought, you know, maybe that's the sort of for, it's a sort of a for itself thing saying, I feel it's important to be open-minded. And so that's going to make me more likely to change my views. Yeah, I've heard about those people. <laughs> I imagine they exist. I totally agree with you. They've decided they're going to undertake this challenge. They've thought about it. They've got a theory and they're going to see if they can do it. And uh, like a lot of things that don't come naturally to me, I still admire yeah. it. It's just not for me. Yeah. And you also talk about how beliefs, as you write, beliefs feed back into preferences. And from that, I took that to mean that essentially every new thing that you believe makes you a different person than who you are inclined to believe different things than you would have believed before. And immediately that made me think about social media. You know, somebody hears some crazy conspiracy theory and they uh, all of a sudden they, they believe it for whatever reason, that's going to make them more likely to believe other crazy conspiracy theories. Is that sort of what you were saying or does that follow? Yeah. And, you know, and as Walt Whitman said, logic and sermons never convince. Yeah. <laughs> you won't talk them out of their conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, as people hold false beliefs, even that act against their interests, like anti-vaxxers. Right. Not nowadays, it used to be, if you resisted, if people somehow persuaded themselves that vaccination was dangerous, even though, of course, it's not. The It could serve someone's self-interest because vaccination is mostly a pro-social right. activity. Yeah. You, you, you don't spread it to other people. But now in some places, like in Kansas and Colorado and until recently in New York, uh, when vaccination rates among children would be as low as 10%, they actually could there's a, a real chance to expose your own child to measles or mumps. So, and, you know, when they're presented with the evidence, they even become more convinced in their pre-existing views that dark forces um, that are driven by pharmaceutical companies and, and other such yeah. actors are trying to, uh, to, to persuade them to, to vaccinate against uh, against their their interest, they think it's ineffective and dangerous. Which of course it's not. And the only there's education campaigns like we had in New York City turned out to be reasonably ineffective. So mm -hmm. it was fines, not letting them go to school, removing religious exemptions. They've done it in Italy, in Germany. It's just the even though it's in the interest of the parents, presumably they care about their children they can't be convinced. Yeah. And, you know, that also made me think about people who, when you mentioned people who do things that seem to be even against their own interest, people who essentially will 
you know, thumb their nose or give the middle finger to elites or authority figures. And I have some personal experience with this. That was pretty much the story of my teenage years. I decided I was going to try to destroy myself just to, despite my parents, right? That's not an uncommon story. But I think there's a, a political uh, uh, way you can look at this as well. And I thought, you know, this kind of, it seemed to be kind of a for itself action. And you could say, well, maybe that is in part what drove some Trump voters, this kind of, you know, the hell with the elites who are telling me how to live my life and do all this sort of thing. And here's a guy who's, you know, pushing back against them. And I don't care that he doesn't have any experience. I'm, I'm, he's my guy. You know, I've come to the same conclusion. Um, I think also people don't want to be told what to do. They also don't like the presumption behind being told what to do, that the people who are telling you what to do are better than yeah, you are. Yeah. And that combination is really deadly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about public policy because you talk about that in the book. And you mentioned that uh, I, when it comes to public policy, that one simple rule, uh, Pareto efficiency, can be used to determine whether a policy can be evaluated in terms of purposeful choice. And so uh, could you explain to, to listeners what Pareto efficiency is? Yeah, that's a, a concept that runs through neoclassical economics. So a choice is Pareto efficient if it's not possible to make one person better off without making somebody else worse off. So let's take an example of a Pareto inefficient solution. A factory pollutes. The cost of of, uh, reducing the pollution or eliminating the pollution is, let's say, $300,000. And the damage that it causes to people around the factory to the environment is a million dollars. So you could have a Pareto improvement by taking money from the people who are harmed and using that to pay for the uh, reducing the pollution because there's an externality, the pollution that the factory is not taking into account when it makes its business decisions. So a policy that would reduce pollution in that uh, Example, whether you made the factory pay for it, whether the government paid for it, that would be Pareto efficient. And if the profits of the factory are less than $300,000, then the Pareto efficient solution is to shut the factory down because if it pays the true social cost of its pollution, then it um, no longer produces value that exceeds the cost of its inputs, so it's socially destructive. So the Pareto efficient solution is to close it down. So that's a very standard sort of example where you you can observe what the costs of the input to the factory you can observe the cost of the pollution and careful thoughtful public policy will make these sorts of calculations and it's uh it's just a matter of calculating it's it's it's, it's not a big a difficult concept and so the assumption here of course is that the if you will the winners will uh compensate the losers in that in that sense, which doesn't necessarily happen in the real world. Right. And that's what people say about trade. Right. Because allowing uh, free trade is generally going to be Pareto efficient. To, if you take the, the classic example of David Ricardo, it was, uh, I think it was 1817, that he 
wrote about comparative advantage, where you have the um, you have English vintners and Portuguese wool manufacturers. They'd all be better off if the Portuguese would make wine. I think actually Scottish wool manufacturers. And the Scottish would make the wool and they could trade with each other. And both countries would be better off. You could compensate the English vintners and the Portuguese wool manufacturers and, uh, and encourage them to focus on their comparative advantage, or you could give them side payments that would make both countries better off. But in reality, those side payments don't often occur. And that's, that is a point that some people yeah. correctly raise. Yeah, and, and certainly for, for trade, I think we're, we're seeing that more and more as, as economists are realizing that while uh, it, it is Pareto efficient, that we haven't done enough to compensate some of the, uh, some of the losers in, in uh, opening up trade. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes they don't even want to be compensated. I'm not sure that people who used to work in manufacturing mm-hmm. want to take the benefits of trade and use that to be retrained in some other profession. Right. Uh, they, you know, and here I think we can appeal to more of a for itself sort of argument that a profession is more than just giving up our leisure time in order to get money to to have goods that we can right that we can use that it's 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 two things it's also forms part of our identity it's uh, a challenge that we undertake that we people gain camaraderie they want to do well with their jobs uh, it organizes their lives and you know i can i think while neoclassical economics doesn't really have a language for describing why people just want their old jobs back to do what they did, what they took pride in, in doing, I think that that it's that work is twofold. That it's uh, partly a game that we play for very high stakes, and it's the substance of our lives. That it's that it's both of those things. And when you, when you uh, consider why people want to to work at jobs that they've historically done that they are that uh, are done in their communities um, that are tangible to them that put bread on their family's table and want to keep doing it. I think that that shouldn't be dismissed because it's not Pareto optimal right. in a, in a larger sense. And we could give them a side payment so they could have yep. more leisure and more goods, which may not be what they want. Well, well, that gets to something that you talk about toward the end of the book, I think, and, and that you you develop this 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 theory, I guess you could call it, of what you know what it is that people really want or what what makes for a really fulfilling life. And you argue that what people really want in most cases is authentic challenges with real stakes and uncertain outcomes. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the importance of that. We kind of started on that anyway. So, yeah, but I don't, I want to be careful though, not to, I mean, I do say want it, it's what they gravitate to, it's what they do, but they don't want it in the same way that I want a larger apartment or Better food or right, right, or leisure time. They uh, because it, it it can't be compared to those other things and traded off at some rate of exchange for the other types of things that that we desire. But I think you know, for a a good and a just economy, ought to give people 
the opportunity to engage in authentic challenges in their work, in their commercial lives, that lets them pit their skills against others, try out new ideas, exercise their creativity, discover their own capabilities. And a, a good economy is not just one that delivers the maximum amount of goods and leisure to the people that inhabit it, although it certainly has to do that too. Right. And so that gets into this, I think, discussion that we hear sometimes about automation and a universal basic income, this this argument that a lot of people's jobs are going to go away and the, the inevitable solution, some people say, is to provide folks with this this income. And there's this concern, it seems to me reflected, you would argue that if you just give people this money, there's going to be this lack of this lack of meaning of challenge in their life. And so that's not going to be enough, or at least that won't be the basis for a good economy in the future. Yeah, I, I sure agree with that. You know, speaking of Keynes, he, he predicted in 1930 that um, by the year 2030, he said that uh, everyone's absolute needs would be fulfilled um, so that people would only work, I think it was... Uh, three hours a day, mm-hmm. which is not what happened. Right. <laughs> uh, people have developed new needs, and also they sort of like the kind of, they like it, they crave the kind of competition activity that comes from work. So, you know, from my point of view, this kind of world where technology would provide for all of our material needs would not be a paradise, but it would be some kind of dystopia. That I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think people would want to live that way. And I'm going to say the orthodox thing that economists generally say when they hear these arguments about technological change that are going to wipe away the world of work, that it's not a new idea, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. They said that when farm machinery came around, they said it in automation in the factory, they said it uh, as with with every wave of automation and now you know we know the argument saying that machine learning can do the things that humans can uniquely do and you know look out because the robots are taking over i just don't believe it and i don't see why this time should be different from all the other times right and and there are some some would say that it's this race between education and technology and we're bumping up against the upper limits and and that's why this time is different though we've been saying this time it's different for a long time you're saying right right, right. sometimes things are different um, uh I, I don't think that argument that it's happened three or four times in the past means it has, has to happen on, on the fifth time. But I think that there are kinds of, you know, that there are kinds of decisions that involve things that are uncertain and unknowable, that are spirited choices that ultimately humans are going to be doing for a very long time. And the extra, the, um, in my own business in investing, the you know some people have done well with quantitative techniques and you know uh, can only admire it from a distance. But for most investing, when you look at a new opportunity, you know you can if you want to you can abstract it and try to apply models to it. But the models are only capable of measuring the way in which this opportunity is similar 
to things that happened in the past. So you can abstract certain characteristics of this particular opportunity, and then you can manipulate those characteristics using models. But what's genuinely interesting is why this is unique, why this is the river that we're only going to step in one time, why this is actually different from the other things that we've encountered before, and why I'll choose this and not that. And then to be able to do that in a team and do it in an organization that has corporate governance, that's such a human kind of challenge that I don't see how machines are going to be taking that over. I think in my own business, which is the one I know about, I think robots will not compete. Although, you know, I use computers, I use data, I use models. But ultimately, it's a very intensely personal decision that invokes judgment shaped by personal experience of my colleagues and myself that, that drives the decision. And, you know, as an investment manager, I deal with investors who have their own leaps of faith when they deal with us and accept that we ourselves can't, you know, if everything could be boiled down to a process and to rules, somebody would have arbitraged it away already. Yeah, yeah. So there wouldn't be an opportunity. So I'm, I'm not afraid of the robots in my own world. And I imagine if there were some other field that I knew a lot about, I would say the same thing. Do you think that this has to happen in the context of work? Because there, there are some would argue that people have just forgotten how to engage in, you might call it constructive or rewarding leisure, and that uh, we, you know, we can find the same sort of value in things like games or hobbies. But I'm wondering if you think that that's enough, if the stakes aren't high enough there. In my, my view, based on my observation, data, introspection, is that it's not terribly satisfying that, that knowing that 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 work is part of is, is contributing to uh, overall well-being. Whether people use this type of language or not doesn't mean you know that that they don't believe this at some level. And you know, on a related note, there's a rage for socially responsible or impact investing, mm-hmm. and I see it in my own students. They want to start even in my children that they worry that they want to do something that will to do good works and to be um, a good person. Can they go and work in a commercial environment? And, you know, I think that that's just this Manichaean view of work is so destructive that everybody has their, their contribution and things that, you know, somebody makes the chair that I sit in when I analyze Wind energy, which I've actually developed in my business, wind energy, Germany and France and, and in the UK. But I don't think that makes me more virtuous or a better person than someone who does any other thing. Right. Um, that where they do what they can and earn a wage or operate a business or work in a business. So I think that uh, I think people know that they're contributing and that they may not use the language of altruism when they're doing it. I don't particularly like moral ground still they getting more than anybody else. But uh, I think deep down they know that it's, that it's an authentic contribution. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this idea of uh, something real being at stake, being important, but in a different, uh, in a different context. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who would argue that policymakers – 
are oftentimes, uh, I guess you could say, too cavalier about some decisions they make because they don't have a real risk. Sometimes in, I think in investment circles, the phrase we hear is skin in the game. There's no skin in the game. I mean, conservatives sometimes say liberals don't, you know, don't know what it's like dealing with burdensome government regulation. So they're very cavalier about regulating or liberals would say that, you know, wealthy plutocratic members of Congress can't appreciate what it's like to be poor. And so they don't legislate with that in mind. And and I'm wondering, do you think there's, first off, I guess, do you think there's anything to this? And if so, can you think of any good ways to have more skin in the game for policymakers in Congress and other places? Well, okay. I hear the skin in the game argument in, in my own world, of course. And I, I think incentives are, are important, but I think economists tend to overemphasize the importance of incentives. Uh, when I'm con- constructing a fund or an investment, investors expect to see incentives. And if they're not, they'll they'll ask about it and I know how to give them the answers that they expect to see and I understand why they're doing this. But some level I also find it insulting. You know, if I'm managing money for a public pension fund, let's say for retired firefighters, the implication that I won't do my best or that I'll take some undue risk for my material gratification, like I'm a trained seal that needs a fish tossed in its mouth every time it performs a trek. I mean, they, the manager at the public pension fund, they're not getting a piece of the pension fund's returns. Why am I any different? Why can't I be have uh, you know, the same level of integrity that they do? And, you know, I know that when you look at politicians that, you know, experience is the gold standard and they embellish their humble origins nowadays when they can and sometimes to uh, sometimes it's yeah. a bit of a stretch yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so least, people yeah. can see when it's not when it's yeah. not okay you know, you know fdr didn't do that lbj didn't do it uh, people accept their uh, appreciation for doing their jobs and for serving everybody including poor people i don't know what changed where you have to be able to show that you were born in a log cabin and when politicians try to do it and it's not i think we we may have the same example it really backfires on them i i don't see why you know i think it has come back to those two examples yeah Uh, well, it's interesting. First off, I never thought I'd hear a, a Chicago economist say economists overemphasize the importance of incentives. So I'm gonna, <laughs> that's, that's something right there. But but, you know, also, it seems to me you're making almost what I call a, a, a religious slash moral argument in a way that that this is kind of a for itself thing saying, why would you not need a material incentive? Well, just because you value doing a good job or being an ethical human being, even though there's no return on that particular uh, investment. Yeah, and that's that's the look. I 
I certainly don't want to start moralizing because I don't right. think anybody yeah. likes anybody likes moral talk, including the, mm-hmm. I don't like to do it. I don't like to listen to it. But all that said, I, I agree with I agree with your remarks yeah. completely. Now, in the book, also you talk about uh, choosing over time, and I just this was a really great uh, discussion and elaborating. And some there were points at which I just I sort of had to stop because my mind was slightly blown. <laughs> but uh, you talk about how choosing over time involves a contradiction. And can you talk a little bit about what that contradiction you see is there? Yeah, I, I argue that laying out different paths for ourselves in the future. It's just not the sort of thing that we have preferences about. And to keep the argument simple, let's just assume perfect certainty. So I'm not going to say that you know it's hard to plan for the future because you don't know what the future is going to bring. Let's, let's put that aside. Let's say you know what's going to happen. And you're trying to decide, do I enjoy myself today and work in the future do, or, 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 or experience uh, difficulties in the future? Or do I do an equal amount at each point in time? Or do I... Um, save the best for last, because he's trying to think about those different paths. Okay, if a demon came to you right now and said, here are your different choices, Michael. Rank them from top to bottom. As a rational person, you should be able to do that. And you should have normal preferences over it. But I argue that any kind of ranking, any path that you pick about the future, when the future starts to turn into the near present, you want to change your mind. Right. Yeah. That the um, that it will look different to you as you move along the path. That you won't. It's it's nearly impossible to have a scheme where the path that you pick now, if the demon were to come to you, would always seem best to you at each point as time moves along. Then. Um, the so this is often taken as maybe the key insight of behavioral economics that we have they call it hyperbolic uh, preferences or non-geometric discounting or preference reversals that it looks good to you you know what you're going to do the trade-off between thursday and friday that seemed right on monday no longer seems right when thursday becomes the present right now my conclusion that I draw is, okay, arrangements of things over time are just not what we have preferences about. Because in the real life, there is no demon that says, this moment is the once and for all moment that you have to choose. And then you have to, that has to seem best to you when you get there. Now, there are, and the, the argument that behavioral economists draw from this is that we need, uh, we need commitment devices. We need somebody to come in to nudge us and to make us do what's in our interest because we can't see our own interests. And I think, I think that's just a, a big mistake. I think there are times, okay, when we, we do need these devices. And three examples that I list in the book. The first is the most iconic example of the commitment device. It's Odysseus in the Odyssey who right. wants to hear the silent song. So he has his sailors tie himself to the mast and then they put wax in their ears so he can hear the siren song but he won't swim to them right. to his to his death so he gets to hear it so he's pre-committed himself not to be able to do what he's going to want to do in the future another example 
I'm working a long time on the book, and it's, this example has gotten a bit outdated because uh, you go to a party and you're going to drive there and you give your keys to the neighbor because uh-huh. you know once you get there, you're going to be too inebriated <laughs> to sure. drive back and you'll make the wrong decision. I guess nowadays you would take an Uber, yeah. but, uh, but you get the idea. And then another example is one I've actually do sometimes is put the alarm clock on the other side of the room so you won't turn it off and um, go back to sleep. Okay, all three of those examples anticipate a temporary impairment of judgment. Odysseus will be under the siren spell, the person at the party will be drunk, and waking up in the morning, you'll be groggy. So when you're in a rational state, you anticipate that there'll be some temporary moment, and then you take precautions. That To, to extend that analogy to say that all day long, we can't anticipate our interests, and therefore we need to constrain ourselves to save, have a government nudge us to save, or, 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 or make us behave on a path that will serve us in the long run, I think, I think is a mistake. And, and I don't think we should beat ourselves up over having inconsistent views, not being able to have perfect plans for the future and be able to stick with them. Well, because sorry. it sounds to me like the distinction you're making is between on one hand, when we can reasonably expect that we're going to be seized by a moment of irrationality, like with Odysseus or waking up in the morning. And on the other hand, we need to uh, take account for the very real possibility or, or likelihood that at point N in the future, N plus one in the future, we are actually going to be a different person and we can't make choices for that different person who will have different preferences. Exactly. The model of thinking of myself today and then future incarnations of myself and then having a certain amount of resources and being able to trade off the well-being of each of those different people and then having tomorrow's person engaged in the same trade-off that looks like I am today Tomorrow's person is going to want to do something different because it's going to see the people in all the different days from a different perspective than I see them now. So it's just the wrong model to see ourselves moving through time. It doesn't make us irrational. It doesn't mean there's something to be done to fix us. Um, So my hope is to, you know, I find this somewhat therapeutic in uh, to be able to liberate myself from not having to think that way. But but then when we when I pull this back into uh, public policy, I think that there are a lot of policy commitments that we make that take a long period of time. I mean, they can take decades or more to really uh, develop and 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 be put into place. And so if if we're not really able to accurately predict what we're going to want by more than one period in time. How can we square that with the need to make big plans for the future, things that we know might take a decade or more to come to fruition? Yeah. Um, simply because we don't have preferences about, in the, in the economist sense of preferences, where we're optimizing the well-being of different, doesn't mean that deeper long-term concerns. And you know, I in schema for action that I can actually I see it as a 
as a positive gesture for rational choice because it's not making rational choice carry the burden of understanding all of our actions, but that we can care about you know, the very long-term history of the environment without having to assume that we're making some discounted present value of, the, of, of ourselves and our, our descendants, that there are other ways that we can think about it that can be quite human and connected to the long term. Yeah. Well, in the end, it seems to me that this is maybe uh, an argument against not, I won't say really against technocrat, but maybe against technocratic hubris and the idea that we can't reduce politics and public policy to a series of equations. But in the end, it it is sort of an, an art, I guess, in a way. Would you say would you say that that's at least close to right? I would agree with that. I still think is a, uh, a worthy thing to, to have. I mean, I teach at a public policy school, yeah. and I think that my students learn valuable things. I, I don't want them all to quit after they listen to your podcast. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to devalue the role of that to uh, to make things up on the fly and to uh, and to ridicule experts, I think it's awful. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, I think when the elites go too far and try to control things that are unknowable and beyond control, I think it's bad for business all around. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that for sure. Well, on that note, we will close. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. So, Kristen, what'd you think? I love this interview, first of all. And I, I, before we spoke today, I actually sent you a little picture. I downloaded Richard Robb's book, uh, Willful, on Audible. So I intend to listen to it after this interview. But um, I thought it was really amazing. It, it, actually, what um, Professor Robb was saying brought to light a lot of what I did in my capstone in graduate school about um, implicit bias. Um, huh. and, and I love, yeah, I, I love it, it, it. I just kept thinking about that. Um, and one thing I wanted to point out was you made a comment about um, education bumping up against technology mm-hmm. early in the interview. Right. And the fact that you thought that things that that there are people who think that things are becoming more automated and you found it unbelievable. And I actually agree with you on that point. Um, And I think, you know, it sort of brings to mind one of the things that I say often, which is that um, one of the problems our society has is that we've kind of limited what our view of education is um, and that we don't take into consideration that education can be changing and ongoing. and even our mindset and our core values don't really change. Um, but the way we view the world, things we learn and how we process these things do change. They have to. Yeah. And I and I think that's important. I think he brought that up. You brought that up. Um, I, I don't know. He he gave some incredible perspective to that point. Yeah. You know, it was uh, I, mean, I don't think this is a partisan thing at all. No, really, not at all. You know, I mean, because this applies to this applies to Democrats, Republicans, whatever, whatever you happen to be, Democratic, Socialist, you name it. And one of the things I really liked about this at first, when uh, when I was approached about talking to to him about the book, I thought, she said, I don't know what what it is exactly. I wasn't quite sure how to categorize. Then I started reading, like, wow, this is something very unique. And I'm always fascinated by people who have a different take on an issue and kind of can get me to see a little part of the world in a slightly different way. And that's one of the things I think was particularly valuable about this book. And it it kind of just slightly shifted 
in a few ways my view of the world. And I think that's a really cool thing when that happens. Yeah. And I, like I said, I, I really appreciate that he honored the fact that there are some things about us that are just totally uh, unchanging and, you know, immutable. These things, these uh, values that we carry with us, um, no matter where we go, our own biases, essentially, which is why I kept thinking of my capstone work. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate that he acknowledged these things, you know, as somebody who's who's studied this this power of will and and this, you know, process of, of decision making, um, because I think too often we forget about that. We think that, you know, and this is the issue in our society is that, you know, we start talking to somebody, we 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 raise our voice enough. We think we, we raise our voice enough. If we make enough compelling points, we're going to completely change their mind and we're going to completely, you know, like alter sure, their yeah. perspective on everything. And the truth is that that I, I can't think of a single situation. I'm sure it's happened before, but I can't think of a single situation where that ever did happen, at least from what I've seen or in my perspective. I mean, you can kind of move the goalpost a little bit, tilt the needle. You can say things that maybe like you said, he changed your perspective on one thing or, you know, maybe he showed you a different perspective or somebody shows you a different perspective. But I appreciate that he that he uh, talked about it being a gradual process. And I think that's a more honest approach, whether we're making decisions on, you know, who we're going to vote for, what we're going to do with our lives, our careers, um, you know, going back to school, you know, whatever the decision is. I, I think all of that's very important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, any other thoughts about the interview? No, I'm excited to read the book. Like yeah. I said, I downloaded it and, and I hope some of our viewers do too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's, like I said, it was a very interesting and rewarding read for me. And I'm glad you're, you're, you're going to be checking out the entire book. That's, that's the whole, the whole point, right? Of, of having the author on yep. is to give us a taste and to check out a little bit more. And also, Kristen, I want to thank you for taking the extra time out of your schedule to talk with me about the book today or about oh, my, my interview. About the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Listener support is what keeps us going, and as a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get special bonus content, completely ad-free episodes, and more. To find out more about this and to become a supporter, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or whatever else you want to share with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. It's on Bipartisan Politics at Reddit. And we've also got a Facebook page where we post stuff. That's Facebook.com slash Politics page. We are on Twitter, of course, at Politics Guys. We'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and most especially, share your favorite episodes on social media or email. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.